No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me this week on the program is nobody. No guest coming in this week. I wanted to talk about the news. So before I jump into all things Neanderthal, I wanted to quickly address the recent discussions I've been having about the coronavirus and my obsession with it and the fact that I'm not going to get it. Um, I have been traveling for the last week, which was super fun. Got to go uh, down south with my wife and daughter, and it was Warm, but not warm enough because right now I'm back in Minnesota and it is not even 13 degrees out. It was sub-zero this morning and I am freezing still. I am questioning why I still live here sometimes. But uh, had a phenomenal time in the warmth that I got to have and uh, got to recharge a little bit. I did not get a chance to visit the uh, cryogenic company while I was in Arizona. Um... I felt like it would have been disrespectful to go there and kind of poke and prod and laugh in their faces, so I um, didn't really take the opportunity to go and make light of the fact that they're just freezing people without a way to thaw them, you know, just putting people into deep freeze, no plan of attack for how to proceed when they get out. Um, but for the coronavirus... I've been watching it in the news. I've been watching both legitimate news sources and conspiratorial ones. And um, as more time has gone on and I've seen how the cases have progressed, I am happy to report that I'm putting less and less stock in any sort of conspiratorial stuff until, uh, I don't know, until more takes off, I guess. But the numbers have either not been disclosed or altered in a way that, uh, or, you know, they just actually are accurately reported that um, 200,000 people infected roughly and uh, about 2,000 deaths. So that's still a very low, proportionately uh, low uh, fatality rate. I know the actual common flu is supposed to be more dangerous than the coronavirus, particularly in the elderly and the young, but that doesn't mean it's not of concern. It just means that um, as people have worked to contain and quarantine this virus, there have been, um, you know, improvements in tracking and keeping it contained. You know, that it's not just spreading like wildfire. It seems to be uh, accurately caught and, you know, sequestered so that we're not just freewheeling and spinning it out there. Uh, I, again, I, I can't control whether or not I do get it, but having been to the airport and back and, um, you know, gone from one side of the country to the other, it did cross my mind, you know, but here I am feeling okay, and my family is okay, and, uh, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, there's always something else, so I just maybe stay positive and don't worry about this one particular thing that's happening generally on the, um, you know, far side of the planet, but it's making its way here. There are people from my town, my city, that are actually uh, infected and quarantined in California right now. Uh, so it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination whatsoever. All it takes is just one person getting into the wrong uh, public space and things go awry. Uh, to that end, I also watched Contagion recently as a fun, carefree night just hanging out. Um, I had seen it back when it came out in the theater, and it was a bummer then, and I thought, oh man, this is just going to be uh, 
feeding into my insecurities and neuroses about the end of the world, when now watching it in light of what's been going on with the coronavirus, fascinating and uh, not as bad as it would seem. That's kind of the interesting thing about Contagion is that I enjoy it. I would recommend watching it if you're at all curious about it. Uh, The fictional virus presented in that movie is 10 times deadlier than the coronavirus. I think they said it had a mortality rate of 20%, which that is horrifying. Um, But the interesting thing that they do is that (laughs) even though the mortality rate is way higher in the movie, it's and society breaks down a bit and collapses and eventually kind of stabilizes as they learn to deal with the vaccinations eventually. Uh, spoiler alert for a 10-year-old movie. Um, I, the, and maybe it's just the fictionalization of it, but the way that society collapses in that movie is very clean, neat, and orderly, and I think it would be a lot worse and a lot nastier and a lot more animalistic if that was the case. Um, I remember seeing it the first time and thinking, oh, I should own a gun. And now I saw it this time thinking, boy, that wouldn't help anything, really. That would just uh, add another element of danger in my own house. Um, So no plans on doing that. But it was definitely more so than the movie Outbreak, which is more about uh, rural villages in Africa and um, Ebola-like viruses. This was more uh, more on brand. Plus, you get to see... uh, a crazy stacked cast in this movie. Anyway, look, I'm going to get off of the coronavirus for now. We'll just jump right into this week's story, which is... Oh, before I do that, if you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, vague threats that you'd like to send, or just interesting articles and pictures of things you think I might like, send them to yourdead2 at gmail.com, Y-O-U-R-E-D-E-A-D-T-O-O at gmail.com, or reach out on Twitter or Instagram. I'm out there. I'm willing to have the conversation. And if you're a dick, I won't engage. But that being said, I'm here. Let's talk about this. Neanderthal funerals. Neanderthal. God damn it. Neanderthal funerals. Let's do it. So, looking in the news while I was traveling, I came across this story um in my uh my little sections of the internet my subheadings of different things um i found an article about the funeral practices well here let's pull up the actual article here as published on inverse by emma betul b-e-t-u-e-l uh funeral flowers for a neanderthal the ancient people had healthy respect for their dead reveals a new soil analysis so this will be a little more uh not in questioning of it, but just looking at what this article is proposing. Uh, this was fascinating for me and just hit right on the head so many of the subjects that I want to talk about on the show. Basically, the long and short of it is places that we've known Neanderthal remains are, uh, and sidebar, uh, I'm going to be saying Neanderthal, which is according to the Google results how you actually pronounce it. I'm not here to make... Uh, proclamations one way or another. I'm just going off of uh, precedent, so I'll shut up. Anyway, um, Neanderthals. Uh, They, even as a subsection of human, as a, a potentially, well, not potentially, as essentially a different species, they had their own death rights and death culture, which, that's fascinating. That's 
that gets at the heart of what I was talking about with animals and death within animal society and animal culture. Are we unique in our handling of this? So for a bit of information on this, let's first look at uh, basic background stuff to get an understanding of Neanderthals on uh, the best and worst place in the world, Wikipedia. So Neanderthal, Homo neanderthalensis, uh, are an extinct species or subspecies of archaic humans who lived in Eurasia until about 40,000 years ago. Uh, they probably went extinct due to competition with or extermination by immigrating modern humans or due to great climatic change, disease, or a combination of these factors. So as there has been more and more um, propagation of things like 23andMe and MyAncestry.com, people are finding that they are much more uh, predisposed to having Neanderthal DNA than they would have thought. And it's one of those things that people all kind of rib each other and laugh about, like, <laughs> crossbreeding. Uh, yeah, that was the thing. That totally happened. Uh, Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis, neanderthalensis uh, yet they, they, they crossbred. This was a thing that happened. It was, uh, this is not a, a novel, noble concept. We are, uh, we're dumb animals that just want to get it on, and this is what we're good at. Um, didn't really distinguish between other species, apparently, but I'm not here to kink shame. And by the way, that sudden silence that's now come over the podcast, that's the embarrassing admission that it's been so cold here. I forgot to turn off the uh, the blower for the heat. Uh, it's freezing in my house, and so as a result, I uh, left the heater on for a little longer than I should have. And, and by heater, I mean furnace because I'm a child. Um, my apologies for the sound quality in the preceding 10 minutes, but here we are. Uh, you get what you pay for. Anyway, um, with humans interbreeding with Neanderthals. We still have evidence of their DNA in our modern society. It's not something to necessarily be laughed about, simply the fact that there is diversity of DNA. Um, if you're a uh, person whose general familial heritage comes from uh, particularly Western Eurasia, you're, my understanding is you're more likely to have Neanderthal DNA intermingling with your Homo sapien DNA. Um, it doesn't have any particular bearing on your status as a human or your ability to function in society as far as I can tell it's just a, a quirk of the DNA backlog that we have out there but uh, there was competition uh, with modern humans they were concurrent and there was war too I mean these were warring animals these were not uh, we were not peaceful pacifists of creatures uh, Getting back to the article, uh, it's unclear when Neanderthals split from modern humans. Uh, time of divergence of Neanderthals is also unclear. The oldest potential Neanderthal bones are dated to 430,000 years ago, but the classification is uncertain. Um, Neanderthals are known from numerous fossils, especially after uh, 130,000 years previous. The Compared to modern humans, Neanderthals were stockier, with somewhat shorter limbs and a larger chest and nose. These features are often explained as adaptations to conserve heat in a cold climate, but uh, they are more likely products of genetic drift and adaptations for sprinting in the warmer forested landscape than uh, that the uh, Neanderthals often inhabited. So it wasn't like a particular uh, arbitrary mutation. It was just, oh, you know, that, that it wasn't some... Uh, orchestrated thing that as they migrated to a particular climate they adapted it was just that as the dna and 
genealogical evolution progressed, they differentiated more and more from people in their, or, you know, from Homo sapiens in their uh, shape, structure, and lifestyle. So, Neanderthal technology is thought to have been quite sophisticated. It includes the Mosterian stone tool industry and the ability to create fire and build cave hearths, make the adhesive birch bark tar, craft at least simple clothes similar to blankets and ponchos, uh, weave, go seafaring through the Mediterranean, make use of medicinal plants as well as treat severe injuries, and various cooking techniques such as roasting and smoking. Uh, Neanderthals made a wide variety of food, mainly hooved mammals, but also other megafauna, plants, small mammals, birds, and aquatic mar and marine sources. Uh, though they were likely apex predators, they still competed with cave bears, cave lions, cave hyenas, and other large predators. Uh, a few examples of Paleolithic art have been controversially attributed to Neanderthals, most famously Spanish cave paintings contentiously dated to before 65,000 years ago, and the Divje, D-I-V-J-E, Divje uh, Babe Flute, which uh, images are easily findable online here. I'm just fascinated by this, that it was a whole substratification of humans, you know, a distinct... Uh, well, what's the word here? A distinct subspecies, a distinct species of human that just seems so weird to say that had their own culture, had their own practices, had their own... their whole thing that just came out of the same nowhere that our own did. And I'm f absolutely fascinated by that. But let's look into... Um, there's a lot of photos in the Wikipedia article where they do reconstructions and the faces are you know, hauntingly human-like. They're, they're just, they're quite close to being, uh, to being us, but not quite there. You know, it's, it's just, it is unnerving to see something so uncannily human, and, and yet at the same time, it plays right into the stereotypes and the, you know, the cartoonish, uh, stylistic use of just making them look like thick-browed dummies uh it, it, that's what it is that's what that's what you know their genealogy their uh, their physical presence they looked different they they were different people and as a result they just it's <laughs> I'm, I'm i think i'm terrified of coming across as uh either inadvertently or just overtly racist either way i'm uh terrified of doing so but they were they were distinct people that had their own culture they were not stupid they were not dumb dumb primitives they were just a distinct group that we wiped out i mean it was survival of the fittest and i don't know exactly how it happened but they didn't survive so it's just it's wild that they from the same ether they came up with their own divergent cultures that it's just a noodle baker for me anyway so if we look at their culture that's crazy to me like it just we don't quite see culture with i mean we do see culture with other animals but to call it culture is so precarious so 
For example, group dynamics in their social structure. Neanderthals likely lived in more sparsely distributed groups than contemporary modern humans, but uh, group size is thought to have been 10 to 30 individuals, similar to modern hunter-gatherers. And looking back at the, the technological side of it, that's a lot of stuff I can't do myself. I can't smoke meat. Like, I could buy a smoker. I don't know anything about smoking meat. I can barely start a fire as is. I don't think I could actually start a fire from scratch in the woods if I had to. I have the vague idea of how to do it from having been a Cub Scout when I was a kid and using the, you know, the the stick and twine method to use repeated motion to create friction, to give a spark, to, you know, like I get the concept. That doesn't mean I can do it. You know, I understand how electricity flows from one uh, capacitor to another, but like I, I can't make that happen out of nowhere. You know, I don't know anything about, not that they could use electricity, but like I, I'm... I know nothing about seafaring life. <laughs> I can sit on a boat. I'm good at that. But I don't know anything about actually making a boat, going out to the ocean, catching a large fish, and bringing it back, let alone cleaning it, cooking it, and eating it. So uh, Neanderthal child's teeth analyzed in 2018 showed it was weaned after two and a half years, similar to modern hunter-gatherers, and was born in the spring, which is consistent with modern humans and other animals, uh, other mammals whose birth cycles coincide with environmental cycles, um, indicated from various ailments resulting from high stress at a low age, such as stunted growth. British archaeologist Paul Petit, Pettit, Paul Pettit. Uh, hypothesized that children of both sexes were put to work directly after weaning, and American paleoanthropologist Eric Trinkhaus said that upon reaching adolescence, an individual may have been expected to join in hunting large and dangerous games. So that was what we're talking about with the cave bears, cave lions, whatever, where they are. Uh, you know, the Neanderthal were part of the apex predator group, but they were also in direct competition. Again, life was dangerous to be a caveman. Sites showing evidence of no more than three individuals may have represented nuclear families or temporary camping sites for special task groups, such as a hunting party. Bands likely moved between certain caves depending on the season, returning to the same locations generation after generation. Cave bears may have been greatly uh, may have greatly competed with Neanderthals for cave space, and there is decline in cave bear populations starting 50,000 years ago onwards, uh, although their extinction is attributed to modern humans, but it is apparently not a coincidence that as cave bear population dwindled, uh, the population of Neanderthals and then Homo sapiens increased, uh, ergo ipso facto, we are bear killers. It is controversially proposed that some Neanderthals wore decorative clothing or jewelry, such as leopard skin or raptor feathers, to display elevated status in the group. Uh, it's been postulated that a small number of Neanderthal graves found uh, was because only high-ranking members received an elaborate burial, as is the case for modern hunter-gatherers. So here we go. A parallel to modern humanity, these, uh, these people would bury and... Uh, have funerals for elevated members of their society. Here's where we're going to get into something controversial, though, because that's, it's, well, before we step into that, um, food, hunting, gathering, food preparation, uh, here we go, art. A large number of claims of Neanderthal art dormant and structures have been made. If accurate, these claims would show that Neanderthals were capable of symbolic thought or were cognitively comparable to modern humans. Uh, however, many of these are ambiguously attributed as the dating interlaps with modern human presence in Europe. So 
basically we can't specifically narrow down what was human and what was Neanderthal. Uh, their brain casing, <laughs> their, their, their brain box, the thing that the brain sits in, that was uh, larger than us, larger than humans, but it was proportionate for the size of their body. So it's, although a different size than ours, it seemed to be comparatively comparatively functional, which what would that consciousness have been? Would it have been like for what it is for a human to be conscious? Or is it closer to something else? Is it, this is again, this is where my, in my, my mind just races thinking about this stuff and I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but um, the purported Neanderthal bone flute fragments made of uh, bear long bones are reported from the Potok cave in Slovenia uh, in the 1920s. Uh, although these are now attributed to modern human activities, uh, the Divje uh, Babe flute uh, from Slovenia has been attributed to Neanderthals, and the Canadian musicologist Robert Fink said that the original flute had either a diatonic or pentatonic musical scale. I don't know. It says, alternatively, it has been claimed that the holes were made by scavenging hyena, as there are a lack of cut marks stemming from whittling, but it is highly unlikely the punctures were made by teeth, and the cut marks are not always present on bone flutes. So you can see the thing online. It looks, for that to have been accidentally bitten, I don't know. That's, I'm no archaeologist, but that seems to be a stretch. Yeah, there's other evidence of tools and uh, scratched floors of a cave. <sighs> It's just, it's crazy. Fire and construction, bark tar, clothing, seafaring, medicine. I mean, at a, an individual site in Cidron Cave in Spain, uh, it seems to have been medicating a dental abscess using poplar, which contains a salicylic acid, the active ingredient in aspirin. There were traces of antibiotic-producing penicillium. Like, this is wild. These were just cave people, you know, wearing very rudimentary clothing, and they had some of this stuff figured out. So here we go. Here's, here's where it gets controversial. Religion and funerals. Claims that Neanderthals have held funerals for their dead with symbolic meeting are heavily contested and speculative. Even if the burial was intentional, it is not indicative of a religious belief of life after death, as such burial could have been the result of great emotion or to prevent scavenging. So... They could have been particularly profoundly upset about the loss of somebody or a leader of some kind or uh, just to prevent birds, buzzards, bugs, whatever, from getting to the dead. Uh, the debate on Neanderthal funerals has been active since the 1908 discovery of La Chapelle aux Saints in a small non-natural hole in a cave in southwestern France, very controversially attributed to have been buried in a symbolic fashion. Another grave at Chenardar Cave, Iraq, this is the most notable one, uh, was associated with the pollen of several flowers that may have been in bloom at the time of deposition. Uh, yarrow, centauri, ragwort, grape hyacinth, joint pine, and hollyhock. The medicinal properties of the plants led American archaeologist Ralph Selecki to, to claim that uh, the man buried was some leader, healer, or shaman of some kind. However, it is also possible that the pollen was deposited by a small rodent after the man's death, although to me that feels a little bit like uh, the rat in Endgame bringing Ant-Man back. Like, how much can we attribute to just one random rat changing the course of evolutionary history here? Uh, 
The graves of children and infants especially are associated with grave goods such as artifacts and bones. The grave of a newborn from La Pharisee, France, was found with three flint scrapers, and an infant from Dederaya Cave, Syria, was found with a triangular flint piece placed on its chest. A 10-month-old from Amud Cave, Israel, was associated with a red deer mandible, likely purposefully placed there given other animal remains are now reduced to fragments. It was also once argued that the bones of the cave bear, particularly the skull, and some European caves were arranged in specific order, indicating the ancient bear cult that killed bears and then ceremoniously arranged the bones. This would be consistent with bear-related rituals of modern human Arctic hunter-gatherers, but the alleged peculiarity of the arrangement could also be well explained by natural causes, and bias could be introduced as the existence of a bear cult would conform with the idea that totem totemism was the earliest religion, leading to undue extrapolation of evidence. So this is wild shit. This is weird stuff that's happening. Um, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that not only were there overlapping... I mean, I had heard of and been aware of the fact that there were overlapping species of humans. I, I kind of had a, a very basic understanding of um, the development of modern man, but to know that Neanderthals and humans had this overlap was crazy, and to know that there was competing culture almost is just I don't know, it's just, it feels so alien in, in a very um, I don't know, in a, in, a, in a weirdly galactic sense of like you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and aliens out there. Like, it just seems like, oh, wait, there, so there were different species on the same planet that thought we were all just the one kind that... That's just wild stuff. Anyway, so this new article that I found on Inverse, um, as I said, written by Emma Betuel? B-E-T-U-E-L. Emma, I'm sorry for butchering your last name. Um, I certainly have a solidarity with that for the last name, Toyson. Um here are some highlights from the article. So between 1951 and 1960, archaeologist Ralph Selecki unearthed 10 sets of remains that changed the way we see Neanderthals, and one individual stood out from the rest. It was a corpse that appeared to be carefully laid to rest, adorned with flowers. Those ancient bones suggested that the Neanderthals had funerals and maybe even a sense of spirituality. So new research published this week, February 2020, uh, offers even more insight into that lost culture's concept of death. Uh, so they were found in this Shan Shanadar cave in uh, Kurdistan, in Iraq, uh, in the same cave where the flower burial remains were found. Uh, they found yet another set of Neanderthal remains and published the results Tuesday in the journal Antiquity. Here we go. So the intentionality has several meanings here. These remains were articulated. They hadn't been moved since the individual died. Uh, so Emma Pomeroy is a lecturer at Cambridge University and the first author of the paper. She tells Inverse that this newly discovered individual was found directly next to the flower burial remains. Uh, though this skeleton didn't have any funerary flowers, it also appears to have been buried intentionally. That intentionality has several meanings. It can tell us that Neanderthals were practical. Uh, perhaps they buried their dead so as not to attract scavengers or spare themselves the smell of a decomposing corpse. Uh, but it also tells us that they gave death the respect it deserves. Uh, quoting Pomeroy here, 
If we can find evidence of actions that don't have a function, the placement of flowers or other objects with the body, or returning repeatedly to the same spot to deposit the dead, that strongly suggests the mortuary behavior has a symbolic or ritual component, as what we might truly call funerary behavior that might hint at a more abstract and spiritual understanding of the world, although it's impossible to infer exactly what those beliefs end of quote that cut off kind of funny i don't know if that's anyway but that's the thing where does this come from if it's just is it born accidentally out of the notion of just not wanting to deal with the dead of just burying them and saying well, if we put these pretty smelling things on top of them, we won't smell this as much. And from there, we develop an extrapolation of customs of death and spirituality. Or it sounds so base or dismissive for me to say, but I feel as though if we were to imagine life in a more primitive mindset of being more attuned to the natural world and exposed to the elements and living as you know, a, uh, a, not parasitic, but, you know, sympathetic relation with the world that you're not, um, you know, in, in a theoretical equilibrium, that there would be more of an understanding of, I feel like there would be more spirituality there. I, I, I can see how a more of a connection to the land or a connection to the world, instead of being highfalutin, hoity-toity, haughty, just self-aggrandizing hairless chimps sitting in technological buildings is e easy to get on the shoulders of giants and assume that we have no connection with the world, that we are these special things. It, it's I could see how particularly losing children in that time would be cause for great mourning, but I could see how that could be a spawn of spirituality. It's just, where do we trace that back to the source? You know, that's... That's what's crazy to me. So if you go back to looking further at the article here from Inverse, if you go back 30,000 to 90,000 years, the cave uh, that they, these were found in was also home to at least 10 Neanderthals uh, whose remains were excavated by Selecki in the 50s and 60s. So this, uh, again, is evidence of the smaller communities. Uh, some appear to have died from falling rocks. One sustained numerous injuries but appears to have been nursed back to health. Um, another of the paper notes may have been stabbed in the ribs, suggesting that cave life was as dramatic then as, say, uh, the murderous Arctic expeditions are of today. Uh, again, quoting Pomeroy here, it's humbling to think of what the cave has seen. The fact that it was home to people right into the second half of the 20th century, either as herders or Kurdish people hiding from persecution. End quote there. God, it's just crazy. The real treasures of the place, including the new find, were found beneath the surface. This time, when Pomeroy went to Shanidar, her team analyzed the soil surrounding the new find. The soil examination showed very different sediments surrounding the bones compared to the sediments found underneath, suggesting that some churning of the soil occurred the same way it does when we dig graves today. Again, were they just, for sanitation's sake, digging a hole, or were they doing this intentionally? That's That's the wild thing to me. So that grave digging probably enhanced a natural dip that was already in the cave. 
there was ancient plant material in the same sediment where the bones were found, which means that those flowers probably weren't brought there by more recent travelers. They also found no evidence that animals had burrowed around the remains. Pomeroy tells Inverse that some theories suggest animals dragged the flowers into their burrows. Uh, these findings make the explanation less likely and strengthens the idea that the Neanderthals used them to adorn their dead. Now, the team will need to test the rest of the soil samples taken from around the new skeleton, if they find that the plant material is not only found near the skeletons, that would further suggest that the flowers were brought there as symbols. Damn. The remains show us yet another way that we're closely connected to them. Like humans, they may have had a rich spiritual world that they immortalized through funerary practices. Like, this is a thing... What if this is inherent to being part of the homo genus like what if funerary practice is something that we've evolved similar to religion you know it's a thing that we do is we it's like this unexamined unacknowledged facet of humanity or animal existence tied into our current understanding of the world that here's the door out we all have it and even variations on people were doing something with it? Ah, I love it. This is just crazy. So the article ends here with another quote from Pomeroy saying, we do have some pretty convincing evidence of burial at other Neanderthal sites, but also other mortuary practices like defleshing the bones, which we have also seen in the early remains of our own species. Um, being able to identify patterns over time or space in such behavior would give us evidence of cultural traditions, again, something we consider to be very human, end quote. Uh, these are the kinds of clues that don't often survive tens of thousands of years, but small ritualistic pieces of evidence like funeral flowers in a cave are some of the only evidence we have of a culture that has since vanished. I don't know. I think this is just... I think it's fascinating to, to think that our ancestors and our ancestors' neighbors, question mark, were doing this. Like, this is not proto-humans. This is, these weren't humans as we know them. These were a divergent species. One that certainly intermingled with our own, as we have DNA evidence of now. But what does that mean? Like, I'm not even just making podcast content now. I'm like, I'm asking you generally, genuinely, write it and tell me, extrapolate this. What does this mean? Help me unpack this. What does this mean if other variants of human beings also had funeral practices? How is this a consistent element to our existence? That's just, it just rattles my mind grapes, you know, it's just, this is wild stuff. I mean, again, some of this is, is you know, taking steps from previously published things. Uh, you know, these caves were discovered 100 years ago, but we're still learning more and more about them. It just, it's, these implications are nuts, and I just love digging into this. Again, I'm sorry for the, I, I got to find a new phrase to use other than that because it's difficult to keep making excuses for it. But please, write in, let me know. What are your thoughts on this? Because I I can't even get past it. I can't think beyond, you know, it's like a freezing point. My mind doesn't understand what is, 
Like I recently got a book from the library called The Soul of an Octopus that I'm excited to dig into because it has to do with it's it's uh, an examination of the conscious world of the octopus and how they're the closest thing to an alien that we have here on the planet because it's so inherently inverted from what we are that it it makes me ask all of these weird philosophical questions about inherent nature of life. This is one of those things that my whole paradigm just shifts because oh, they put flowers in their graves? I don't know. I love this stuff. It's just noodle baker stuff. So write in. Let me know what you think. I'm glad to be back even though I'm freezing here in the basement. I'm going to turn the heat back on. Again, my apologies for the first 10 minutes where I left it on, but I was so damn cold here. Uh, it's supposed to start warming up, and I'm going to get some guests back on the podcast here so we have more people to talk to and some more diverse content. But again, as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate it so much, and I will talk to you next week.